the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. I have three boys, and I watch an awful amount of kids' TV. I wonder whether you have seen any of these ads uh, recently. Some of you will be completely surprised because you won't have seen this Aldi ad. Uh, some of you will, this will just be all too familiar. I'm genuinely baffled by it. Um, probably the faces of the, the kiwi, the conquer and the carrot might well have been my own face the first time I saw it. It is uh, Aldi's Christmas ad and it's a take on Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory uh, starring all your favorite Christmas vegetables. How about this one? Uh, This is from Boots. Uh, You're invited along with a mother and daughter on a grand quest to the North Pole to buy Santa the gift of £3.60 compression flight stockings, somewhat highlighting how ludicrous Boots' product range really is. (laughs) And how about this one? If you haven't seen either of those, chances are most people have seen the John Lewis ad. It seems that John Lewis are are looking to capitalise on that bizarre uh, fashion that's taken over absolutely everywhere of houseplants by making me want a Venus flytrap. Well, that's this year's latest uh, attempts at Christmas ads. One journalist called these proliferation of ads a seasonal emotional arms race, each one trying to connect deeply with us and, of course, sell stuff. But the one that really captured people's attention and really captured the nation's hearts was this one. I wonder whether you've seen this from uh, Charlie's Bar in Enniskillen in Ireland. Have you seen this one? This one really got people talking. It's been made on a shoestring. It's got something like 60 million views on TikTok. Charlie's Bar in Enniskillen tells the story of an elderly man reminiscent of Up. He walks alone after placing flowers on a grave and he's ignored. He's ignored by the young, the busy and the uninterested. But then he walks into Charlie's Bar where he sits alone only to receive a warm welcome from a young couple and their cheeky little dog. The video and the soundtrack, they get you right in the heart, and it ends with a yeet quote about strangers being friends that you haven't met yet. And the comments and things that we, people were writing about this advert showed that everyone had been sobbing and it had really got people in the heart. It's a, it's a powerful story because it demonstrates the power of simply being with It seems to speak to and answer something deep within us. Now, our own Christmases, whatever they hold, revolve around that mix of swirling emotions related to perhaps the joys of who you will be being with over the next few days, or perhaps the pains of being without. The Christmas story is at root that same story of being with, At the very outset of the Bible, God is fascinatingly portrayed 
as, in very human terms, having created all things, then seemingly inhabiting, coming into his very own world as he walks and talks with man and woman in the garden in the cool of the day, Genesis 3 and verse 8. It's the very picture of friendship, walking together and walking alongside. The Christmas story is a little bit like that. The coming of God himself, walking alongside his people once again. Jesus, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. Yet if I speak to the sceptic or the unconvinced as I once was, I can hear the critique. Can't you hear it too? I get it. It's a powerful story. It, but isn't it just that? Isn't it just story, just fairy tale, just magic? Well, God has entered his world. Of course it would be extraordinary. But it's not magic, but miracle. It's not myth, but mystery. Eternity in time. Immensity in space, the infinity in the finite, immutability in change, being in becoming, all, as it were, in that which is nothing. The real story is told in scripture, not in culture, connects with our hidden depths, not just because it's emotionally true, but because it's historically true. Now, significantly, when you do this thing occasionally when you're preaching where you get your notes the wrong way around, um, apologies, but uh, let's be honest, there is plenty of sentimental dross around, um, uh, around Christmas, and so sifting through it all can be really tough work, even a lovely artwork like the one on the screen, uh, this kind of seeming group shot of everybody together at the Nativity. Uh, brings with it a kind of copy-a-paste approach to, Chris, to the Christmas story. It plays around with the timeline, includes embellishments and assumptions. And we've got to acknowledge one of the biggest ones. One of the biggest ones, of course, is the date itself. The Bible makes no mention of the 25th of December. The date of the event is not given, not even the time of year. You won't find any clues in the Acts of the Apostles or the letters of Paul. Clement, writing in the 3rd century, suggests the date might be for Christmas, drumroll please, the 20th of May. Or, of course, it could be the 24th of April or the 25th of April. He's not entirely sure. He's hedging his bets. Well, I'm sure most of you have bought the turkey now, so why don't we all just keep the date in the diary? Uh, it seems like the sensible thing to do. I thought I'd have a go at trying to rewrite it, but uh, I think I'd struggle. Now, the Bible may be fairly quiet, if not silent, on the when of Christmas. But I want to assure you this evening that it's really, really loud and really, really clear on the what and on the why. And I just wanted to take a look at those. Let's take a look briefly at the what. Matthew, an apostle and disciple of Jesus, couldn't be clearer that he is narrating a grown-up real history. If we were truly reading the whole of the Christmas story this evening, uh, you'd have had about three minutes straight from Joan of reading ancient Hebraic names. I was actually quite keen for that, but I got outvoted, so um, uh, that's much to your benefit. 
It goes something like this. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and on and on it goes. But suddenly, suddenly, it stops. It stops seemingly really abruptly. It seems Joseph didn't father anyone. We read in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 16, Joseph is described in this way. He's just the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. This is not a mistake or an oversight, but it does require explanation. Matthew goes on to give it to us. Take a look at the screens. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Jesus' birth is unique, unlike any other, a virgin birth. God enters his world, and it's extraordinary. This is something completely different. This has never happened before. But it is not magic, but miracle, not myth, but mystery. It just so happens that the majority of us in this room already believe in a virgin birth. We believe in a virgin birth for the universe, don't we? We just call it by a different name, much more sciencey one, the Big Bang. The what of Christmas is extraordinary. It's the coming of God himself. Matthew goes on to put it this way. Quoting from Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And as a skeptic and as someone curious or unconvinced, I was really, really intrigued by that. I love this because when you come to evaluate Christianity, The skeptic and the unconvinced, as I was, you're not looking at a set of ideas or theories or some helpful intellectual foundations. You're looking at a person who's not hiding. He's there in history to be seen, to be looked at. Someone to whom you could come and see. The word, logos, wisdom itself, is here among us. And the invitation, as we know it from John's gospel, is simply to come and see him. At Christmas, we see the desires and the purposes of God turning up in front of our very own eyes. She will give birth to a son, says the angel. And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. His name, this one who is God with us, is Jesus. Yahweh saves. A name filled with possibility and potential, which points forward to the rest of the story. And the hints of conflict and opposition ahead. And we'll come back to that thread a little bit later on. Well, you've heard the readings and we've been singing the carols. We've got to ask ourselves, why did God do all this? We said what the what was. The what is the coming of God himself, Jesus, the Messiah. Now let's just spend some time and pause and think about why. Why did God do all this? 
It could be stated as briefly and as succinctly as God loves you. If you haven't heard that before, uh, hear it now. God loves you. If you've got a heart that's anything like mine, then you might well need to hear it again. God loves you. He has sought you out. This is his plan. He's come to find you. He's come to find his people. That's us. And he's come to be with us once again. This is good news. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And he's given him to you. God loves you. We were looking at that uh, picture of uh, friendship. That picture of two people walking uh, side by side. That's the picture of being with. And being with is the foundation of all of the ministries here at this church, here at Belmont. If I was speaking earlier to the unconvinced um, or to the, to the skeptic, let's take some time now to speak to family. Being with is the foundation of all that we're up to here at this church, isn't it? In fact, that phrase from the end of that Charlie's Bar ad, which is a Yeats quote about strangers becoming friends, if you actually dug around in a lot of our paperwork and purpose statements, you'll find that in all of the ministry areas here at this church. That desire for strangers to become friends and to spend time with people. That's true whether the ministry's going across ages, nationalities, life stages, whatever it may be. And so thank you to all those who've made those ministries possible and enabled them uh, this year. I think we are working with the heart of God when we do those. But there is something that would have made God with us almost impossible. It's a big theme in our readings. It's also a big theme in our carols. And I wondered if you spotted it. It is sin. It makes the wonderful picture of being with look something like that. It's sin that paints that lonely opening scene from Charlie's Bar of a man walking alone, placing flowers on a grave, ignored by the young, the busy, and the uninterested. It's sin that means even when people are with one another and are sitting next to one another and are close to one another, they can be worlds apart, having such conflict or animosity or even just plain dullness of feeling for one another, that even when we're together, we can be far apart. That's sin too. And Jesus has come to save us from sin. Verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1. He will save his people from their sins. The sins of his people, their sins, our sins, your sins, my sins. And we just struggle to talk about it, to be honest. We use some words to kind of get around it, like broken and stuff like that. But at root, uh, this is sin. I've been helped recently by a lady called Heather Thompson. Tomlinson, whose own journey of walking with uh, Jesus uh, starts in a fascinating way. If you, if you ever um, get to find out people's stories in church, you'll find that there's a ragtag bunch from all over the place. 
Um, Heather's story starts as an angry lefty in the noughties before it was cool, she says. And in a recent article, she describes sin uh, this way. It's this tight knot of grumpy self-centeredness, what Christians call sin. It had distorted the lens with which I viewed the world and my role and responsibilities within it. We're all a complex mix of hurt and hurting, oppressor and oppressed, sinner and saint. The world had previously been black and white. I started to see it as it really is, with a complex cause and effects, good and bad choices, cultures and ideas, and a hefty dose of old-fashioned vices, such as pride, greed, and lust. I love that description because it's so realistic, uh, yet balanced. It accurately describes the problems out there in the world as we see them, that we attribute to others, but it accurately describes too what's going on in here, in my heart, sin in here. And Christmas just requires that we own it first, Christmas requires that we own that description, kind of put our hands up and say, hey, that's me too. The issue's not just out there, but in here. It's sin that made God with us almost impossible. But let me tell you about Jesus. God's heart is far greater than our sin. They used to say of him, that's of Jesus, that People would just say things about him and they wrote them down. This was a, you know, a takeaway comment that someone used to just summarize Jesus. Here he is. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He spent time with people like you and I. In fact, he used to say of himself that he had come not for the healthy, but he had come for the sick. So... If, that descript- if the shoe fits on that, take heart. He's come for you. God loves you. His name, Jesus, means Yahweh saves. And he will save his people from their sins. His name is filled with possibility and potential, which points forward to the rest of the story. It's on screen there. We know where this story is going. If there is a saviour coming, he's saving from something. There's going to be opposition to this guy. There's going to be conflict for this guy. There's going to be adversity ahead of him if he truly is to be saviour of the world. And he fulfills his title and his name to the utmost. It's a name that finds its fulfillment in his trial, in his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, where freeness, where forgiveness and salvation are freely offered to you, to us. God loves you. Now, in Western culture, it is clear that Christmas is winning out and out against Easter. It's the one that receives the greatest attention, whereas the earliest followers of Jesus, as I said earlier, probably wouldn't even know when the date was. And if they did know it, they might have been turning up on the 20th of May for their turkey. But the earliest followers of Jesus, it's written over the Bible, would have placed the greatest importance on the events of Easter. Here's what I'm trying to say. The what of Christmas is the coming of God himself. The why 
of Christmas is to be with us, to be with you, to save us, to save you. Now, if the what and the why have intrigued you uh, this evening, I would love you to find out a little bit more. We've got plenty of these books out at the table uh, just as you as you are exiting. They are Christmas Unbelievable by Rebecca McLaughlin. Four questions everyone should ask about the world's most famous story. Please come up and grab one. They are uh, for you. Well, the what of Christmas is the coming of God himself. The why is to be with us and to save us. So it's no surprise then that after his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, Jesus wants to leave his friends, his friends who he's come to be with, with one last thought. He says to them, and surely I am with you, always, to the very end of the age. Amen.